Hello, and welcome to the SWIB Podcast, where members of the Wisconsin Retirement System can turn for timely information on the investments that help fund the state's pension system. I'm Chris Preisler, Communications Specialist for the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, or SWIB. And I'm Dusty Weiss, producer of the podcast. Sophisticated investment strategies, forward-looking technologies, and strong internal asset management helps make SWIB a leading investment organization. As a premier money manager, SWIB brings a disciplined, prudent, and innovative approach to market opportunities. But to remain at the forefront of the public pension industry, SWIB must continue to evolve. In this episode of the SWIB podcast, we're going to talk to Brian Helmer, SWIB's Managing Director of Global Public Market Strategies. Brian is going to share the story of his journey to SWIB and how he is using his three decades of investment experience to help develop the infrastructure, people, and strategies aimed at achieving returns that will help sustain the Wisconsin retirement system over the long term and keep it among the few fully funded public pension plans in the country. Brian's team is at the forefront of active management strategies that have helped SWIB deliver returns during this year's uncertainty. In our discussion today, we will talk to Brian about the challenges of this past year and ask him to share his thoughts on what to expect in 2021. The SWIB podcast is a monthly opportunity for you to learn more about the people and funds that comprise the Wisconsin retirement system. Please make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share this episode with your fellow WRS members and leave a review on iTunes so it's easier for other members to find this show. Brian Helmer joined SWIB in 2016. Prior to his role at SWIB, he was the director of the Hawk Center for Applied Securities Analysis at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Business. From 1996 to 2009, Brian was a principal and portfolio manager at Northern Capital Management. He previously served as an equity analyst and strategist for Bank of America. Brian is active in the Madison CFA Society and served as board president from 2017 to 2019. He holds a bachelor's degree and master's degree in finance, investments, and banking from the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Business and is a CFA charter member. Recently, Brian was named to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's Investor Advisory Committee, which was created by legislation to provide input to the SEC commissioners on ways of improving the market structure and regulatory landscape. Brian oversees the Global Public Market Strategies Division, which was created in January of this year by consolidating the internally run public market strategies under a single structure. The division, which oversees $60 billion, has five major strategy areas, and also includes SWIB's trading operation and corporate governance effort. Brian, thanks for joining us today, and welcome to the SWIB podcast. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. Let's start with your background and the experience you bring to SWIB. Can you talk a little bit about how you got your start in the financial industry and some of the early investment lessons you learned? Yeah, thanks for the question. I, in some ways, I think of myself as kind of the consummate poster child of how the system is supposed to work in the sense that I grew up on a farm here in Wisconsin, went to public schools, went to the University of Wisconsin, which I was extremely excited to have the opportunity to attend. Packers fan, Bucks Brewers, Badgers, all of that stuff. I mean, just the state of Wisconsin has been very good to me. I'm a proud Wisconsinite. And to your question, the opportunity to participate in the Applied Security Analysis Program as a graduate student at UW-Madison was a life-altering opportunity because it gave us the chance to learn about investing by making decisions relative to real money. And to do that while having the opportunity to talk to practitioners, we literally would have a guest speaker from the industry every week. 
So the reality and the gravity of making decisions about real money at that age, combined with the insights from people doing it in the field, was an enormous opportunity that really jump-started my chances of hitting the ground running when I finally did get a job in the business. And when I reflect back on what I took away at the heart and soul of that experience, it was more than just learning how to analyze a business or build a financial statement model, which is part of every business school student's journey. It really taught me at the core what equity investing, at least, and really all investing is all about. And that is to make investments into opportunities that are likely to ultimately perform better the company will do better than the expectations that are priced into the stock. And if you can find those situations, you're going to do well as an investor. But doing that is a tricky business because it requires you to understand what's priced in. It requires you to have a view that's different from what's priced in. And so theoretically, a view that is somehow more informed than the collective wisdom of all of the market participants, not an easy thing to achieve. And the challenge of trying to do that ultimately led, I think, all of us that were part of that program to understand the importance of behavioral finance crutches and tailwinds such as value investing and momentum investing. And those are buzzwords now. And at the heart of what they mean is they are ways of getting yourself involved in investments that have a higher probability of being mispriced, a higher probability of doing better than what's priced into the stock. And we can certainly expand on that, but I think having that insight at such an early age gave me a huge competitive advantage against some of the other college graduates and MBA graduates that I was competing against for jobs. So it was a really, really important opportunity and experience for me. And it led me to get a job on the East Coast, which at the time seemed very exciting. It was something different and it was where the industry was located for the most part, at least the heart of the industry was in New York and Boston. And so we were out there and I got to work as an equity analyst on a variety of sectors, got to play a strategy role at one point, got to analyze asset classes and markets as a whole. And so it was a great way to start my career. And I, again, I go back to the opportunity to be part of that UW-Madison program. Brian, I've got another question that I have to ask you. But first, I grew up in Wisconsin farm country too. And so I have to ask you, what'd you raise and how many head, if appropriate? <laughs> sure. So we were a dairy farm at the core. We milked about 60 head Holstein cattle. We also raised hogs for purposes of selling as feeder pigs. Uh, and, uh, and we raised some to the point of where we sold them as part of meat sales and things like that. But for primarily dairy cows and hogs, we did have a chicken coop and some chickens, of course, like every farm did. So it was kind of that classic Wisconsin farm kid experience. And, and whereabouts were you guys located? Yeah, we were just outside of Plymouth, Wisconsin, Sheboygan ah, okay. County, up in that mm -hmm. part of the state. Very nice. Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, too, but you are one of the many people that left Wisconsin, left Madison, went out, walked the world a little while, got some experience elsewhere, and then boomeranged back and came back to Wisconsin. How is it and why is it that you ended up coming back to Madison? Yeah, it was really another absolutely amazing opportunity, and I feel so blessed to have had a number of those throughout my life. About seven years into my career out east, I had gotten married. My wife is also a financial analyst, so we were very happy and had lots of career opportunities in Boston. 
But I got a call from a grad school classmate of mine who told me this amazing story where a firm in Madison was looking to bring in a new investment team. And the kicker was that the head of the marketing side of the firm was Professor Steve Hawk, who had started the Applied Security Analysis Program when he was at the university in 1970, but had left in 1979 before I was a student there to start this firm with his partners. And despite the fact that he had left the university, he still came back and interacted with the students, and, you know, in some, many ways his baby that he had started. And so we had all gotten to know Professor Hawk. And when he left the university, the firm he was part of, the primary investors were looking to retire in 1996. And Steve had started a conversation with a grad school classmate of mine, Dan Murphy, about having Dan come in and take over the investment side. And Dan extended that conversation by inviting me to come in and join him and have us come in as a package team to take over that opportunity. So here we were, seven years out of school, with an opportunity to not just work at an investment firm, but run an investment firm. And I don't think very many people get that opportunity. I, I question Steve's judgment to this day as to why he would, I mean, how far down on the list were you when you called us? <laughs> but as the story goes, we actually did much better than I think any of us thought we would. And, and it was a tremendous opportunity for us to learn so much. I mean, at least for me, maybe everybody else was far ahead of me, but it was a fantastic group of people, tremendous culture of trust and transparency within the firm. And it's something that I really learned the value of in that time about how having people aligned, having people communicating effectively, having a real sense of shared goals leads to success in a way that's really hard to achieve without that. As a business owner, it was an invaluable opportunity to learn about how to run a business, how to communicate and lead and align goals. And at such a young age that I think was really valuable again for me. And then on the investment side, it was an opportunity to move into portfolio management think more deeply about how returns are created by various exposures within the portfolio and other types of things that were really a next level of analysis versus the security level type of lessons that I had been learning that started at UW and that I had been learning in my career out East. We were now learning different lessons as to how to be portfolio managers and to think about how all of those security holdings came together to form this combined portfolio that had its own characteristics and could be looked at as a single security against the benchmark or an index and really gave us a lot of new insights as to how to think about that. So it was a tremendous opportunity. We had a fair amount of success and uh, very grateful for those many years spent at Northern Capital. So Brian was returning to the university. What you expected? Yeah, the opportunity to return to the university, which was a difficult decision from the standpoint of leaving the people and the partners that we had created at Northern Capital. But looking past that, it was an enormous opportunity to expand my skill set, to learn from a new group of people, to give back to a program and a university that helped launch my career and to ultimately, I think in the back of my mind, my real goal was let's do something completely different, dramatically pull my skill set, stretch it out in various directions across new metrics, 
and then bring all of the lessons learned as an analyst, as a business owner and portfolio manager, and as someone who was hired to teach, but ultimately also gets the chance to learn from so many other practitioners, how to bring that all together and help a firm become more successful. And that was the ultimate vision for what I had when I went to the university. And it played out very much as I expected, with the one difference being I was surprised very pleasantly by how much I was able to learn from all the alumni and guest speakers coming back to talk to the students. And I always joke with my friends, you know, I would sit in the back of those classrooms listening to our alumni come in and try to impart some of their wisdom to the students. And just the nature of their inexperience, they were able to consume maybe 30% of what they were being told. But I was able to consume 90 to 100% of what I was being told. And I think I got a lot smarter during those seven years than the students were ever able to, just because I had started from a little bit higher starting point and really was able to take in the lessons and the messages from the alumni. And it really allowed me to think in a much broader sense about investing than I had been able to prior to coming to the university. Hearing how so many different people have carved out successful investment processes and how they think about investing and think about risk management was an amazing opportunity at exactly the right time in my career to really consume it and to know what to do with it. And it was incredibly empowering. Obviously also got a chance to help people learn and to think more deeply about learning styles and how you communicate effectively to address different learning styles. The need to be optimistic and constructive as you talk to people who are struggling. It also gave me the chance to be a servant leader where it really became crystallized in my mind that one of the primary goals of being an effective leader is to do the things necessary to make the people that you're overseeing and supporting more successful. I think that was very helpful, again, at the right time in my career. So just a tremendous opportunity to be at the university for those seven years. Brian, we actually talked in the last episode as well with Chris Prestigiacomo, and he's another product of the University of Wisconsin who now works at SWIB. I'm also a proud Badger. Go Badgers. Uh, Go Badgers. Uh, It sounds like SWIB and the university have and maintain a really strong relationship. Oh, absolutely. The connections between SWIB and the university run quite deep. For example, we typically have hired PhD students in economics and business schools to do research projects for us. We have relied on professors as consultants as we struggle with certain types of problems, economic problems or forecasting problems, modeling problems. Obviously, the university is a tremendously rich source of interns and full-time employees. Oftentimes, people who have gone to the university fall in love with the city of Madison and are open to having a career in Madison, something that might be a little bit tougher sell for somebody that went to school out east, grew up out east, or even out west, right? The lack of familiarity sometimes breeds a sense of risk coming to the Midwest and living in a place like Madison. But once you're here, as I think both of you understand, it's a hard place to leave. It's a very interesting, very rich background that you've amassed, sort of moving from role to role and picking up more skill sets like a snowball as you go along. How did those all come together and what ultimately brought you to SWIB as a career move? And how do all those skill sets now serve the role that you fill there? 
Yeah, great question. My original opportunity at SWIB was created when there was an opening for the managing director of the public equities division. So right down the middle in terms of the kinds of things I'd been working on as an investor. And a really, I mean, this was my pitch to David Villa and the interview committee, this was the exact opportunity I was looking for. First of all, it allowed me to stay in Madison, but more importantly, it was a chance to bring together all of the skill sets I'd been working on. I could bring my investing skills to bear on helping improve investment processes and helping teams understand how to monitor their portfolios and think about their portfolios to be more effective investors. I could help manage the firm Given my experiences in managing Northern Capital, I could hopefully bring a positive impact on the culture. SWIB has always had a great culture. So I've, A, I fit right into the culture and, and hopefully was able to continue to, to forward that very positive and supportive culture at SWIB. So it was a great fit on many fronts and a tremendous opportunity that I was deeply excited to have and, and very grateful to, to be offered that opportunity. The, the original role of public equities actually just recently expanded. At the end of 2019, I was offered the opportunity to oversee and support a consolidation of the three different public market divisions that we had within SWIB. The public equities division that I had already was overseeing, along with public fixed income and the multi-asset division. So we consolidated that all together. I was named as the managing director of the new consolidated division. And in that role, I now get to support all of the active strategies within our public markets teams across the entire agency. And it's really been a busy and fun year as I try to work with our teams to help us add value and beat the indexes. So you mentioned active strategies. Can you describe what you mean by that term? So when we talk about active investing, what we're really talking about are people who are trying to build portfolios that have a very similar look and feel to some kind of a passive benchmark that you might be able to buy or invest in very inexpensively. So people think of like an S&P 500 ETF. The classic one is the SPY, the SPY uh, ETF. What a fund like SWIB and the CTF and you know for the WRS, what we're running, we'd like to have exposure to that collection of large cap US equity companies. But ideally, because of the number of dollars involved, it would be very valuable if we could do a little bit better than what the S&P 500 is doing. Because even a small gain versus the index is a lot of money to the plan, given the starting point of how many assets we run. So what I'm overseeing are people who are trying to do that. They're essentially trying to invest in the same companies that comprise the benchmark, but hold them in different weights or exclude some of them and things like that to help us put ourselves in a position where over time we're doing better than the benchmark. And I think this is an underappreciated part of the task is to beat the benchmark without differing too much from the benchmark that you risk getting way behind. And it's a very delicate balancing act that we spend a lot of time thinking about. I don't know how you ever sleep. That sounds incredibly <laughs> stressful. <laughs> well, the good news is after many years of actually having the frontline job of doing that, now I get to help the people doing that. So they're the ones, to be fair to my teams, they're the <laughs> ones that have to literally lose the sleep over whether to buy, sell, you know, and what, what to do next as the markets change. And my job is to help guide them through that process and help them get better over time. So, and, and in fact, that leads really well to what I'm working on these days. 
I think my core role in this vast division where all these different teams are trying to beat their benchmarks is to help them with any blind spots that they might have with their core investment process. And that, that happens, right? So if you're a value investor and your core focus is, I'm gonna invest in stocks that are relatively inexpensive versus other stocks, stocks that people have sort of given up on because they've had some bad news or maybe they're not the sexy story in terms of the technology and they're, they're more of a mundane business and maybe they've had a problem and people are like, ah, I'm out. But what value investors have going for them is that, again, what's the core goal? The core goal is to own stocks that will do better than the expectations that are priced in. So often the expectations get so low that even though they aren't going to be the next Tesla, they're going to do better than what was expected by the way the stock was priced. And if you hold stocks like that, you're going to beat the benchmark. So teams doing that and doing that well generally will outperform over time. But what they're probably not likely to do is be involved in a lot of names where there's a lot of positive things going on. The more sexy stories, the go-go stories, the Teslas and the Netflix and all those kinds of names. And that's fine in a long-term sense, but what I'm trying to help the teams understand is how much underweighted to those kind of names are you and are you comfortable with that? In other words, it's fine that that's not your focus because you can add value and up and beat benchmarks without focusing on the go-go names because they have their ups and downs too. But it is important to not ignore where you are relative to the momentum names when you're a value investor. And if you're a momentum investor, it's important to know how underweighted are you to the value names. So trying to broaden people's perspectives beyond what their core focus is to reduce the risk of having a market environment where everyone falls in love with the value stocks or everyone falls in love with the momentum stocks and you're just left behind because of your focus on only one thing. I think that's what we're trying to do at some level. So there's that. I think the other major focus is building better tools to allow teams not only to monitor where they are and understand their exposures as we were just talking about, but just as importantly, to try to put people in a better position to get better over time to learn over time. If there's anything I've taken away from my career progression, it's the value of being a lifelong learner. And one of the balancing acts that investors, active investors like the ones I oversee have to struggle with is the balance between being disciplined and sticking to the process that you know will ultimately be successful and yet staying open-minded to slight tweaks, small improvements that are justified by a rational study of looking back at the data, looking back at the notes you took about why you made certain decisions. Are there things you can learn over time? And I always believe there are. And my goal is to put people in positions where they have the tools that help them learn. I can't always be the teacher because the complexity of the game that we're playing is so large that there is no magic bullet single answer that solves everyone's problems. What I think I can do, though, is empower people to learn in a way that is specific to their process and specific to the problems that might be existing within their process to give them a chance to be better over time and more consistent over time. That's a very meta way 
to sort of look at your role as a supervisor of a team of people whose job it is to manage these investments, but I imagine it pays off. And in fact, you were recently named to the Securities and Exchange Commission's Investor Advisory Committee. So first and foremost, congratulations oh, on thank that. You. That was just this week. So very new news. Certainly a hat tip to you there and your years of experience and expertise in this space. But can you talk a little bit more about that and how it's going to help you in what you're doing at SWIB? So as I told the team and, and the senior team at SWIB this week, it may be my name on the website, but it's all of us that are going to get the chance to help identify topics we want to bring to the table, to understand how we want to prioritize them, to provide feedback on other topics that are before the SEC, and to really decide. The goal of this committee is to advocate on behalf of investors for changes that we want the SEC to take up. It doesn't mean that they will always happen, but it's a formal advocacy vehicle that was established by Dodd-Frank uh, a bunch of years ago and allows investors like myself and from other parts of the investment landscape to have a formal and consistent opportunity to provide that input into the SEC's oversight process. So we look forward to being able to continue to make progress on improving the landscape for our pensioners and for investors as a whole. Brian, why do you think it's important to try and do active management? And what's the value to the WRS given the low return environment we're in? Well, at its core, the value of being an active investor is to produce better returns than we would have if we didn't do it. That benefit takes on an even more exaggerated importance in a world of low returns because the target return that we're trying to achieve you know, this is an interesting point. I mean, if you think back 20 years, what was the difference between pension funds today and pension funds 20 or 30 years ago? 20 or 30 years ago, they were mostly invested in bonds. Why? Why has it become so much more complicated and sophisticated and complex? Well, because 20 years ago, the expected return for a pension fund was around 7 or 8%, and bonds yielded about 8%. So if I can get what I need through bonds... Why do I need to do all this other fancy stuff and invest in international equities and small cap equities and multi-asset strategies that combine derivatives and use leverage and all these crazy things that aren't crazy, but they're complicated? The need to do that is a direct reflection of the challenge of hitting absolute return targets in an increasingly low return environment. When interest rates are near zero and bonds yield two or 3% and your target return is seven, you've got to get a little more creative as to how you're going to put a seven on the table in that kind of a backdrop. And that's what this is all about. It is a direct reflection of trying to achieve the goal of 7% in an environment that doesn't make that very easy because the alternative is either higher contributions, which nobody wants, or lower payouts, which nobody wants. So I view the work that SWIB is doing is incredibly important to try and avoid either of those two fairly unpopular outcomes. And uh, so far we've been successful. You know, We certainly hope to continue to be, but the people at SWIB, I think, have a lot to be proud of. The 10-year return, the five-year return are well ahead of the targets that we've set despite the challenges. And it's something we're all very proud of. To your point, Brian, about this low-yield environment that we find ourselves in, a common topic of discussion with all of our guests this year has been COVID-19 and the impact that it has had on the investment world, particularly in exacerbating that low-yield environment. 
How have things gone for you in 2020, given the unusual nature of the year? It's been an amazing year. The level of uncertainty that was introduced into the outlook for companies and the economies all over the world was like nothing we've ever seen. It was like a synchronous global natural catastrophe where something terrible has happened. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know how bad it's ultimately going to be. All we know is that it's bad, it's unprecedented, and we don't really fully understand it. And when you get that, you're going to see major sell-offs in everything because people just get scared. And when you're scared, you don't want to be in assets that have some amount of risk associated with them. So people, they ran to hide in treasury bonds and gold and things like that. So if there's any silver lining to that kind of a situation, it's an opportunity for an investor like Swib, who has a long-term time horizon, and who has the stability of knowing that we remain in control of our assets, we can take a longer view. We can look at a situation like we saw in the spring where equity markets went down 20, 30, 40% and reallocate, not just back to where we were, but maybe a little more. We can tilt the scales higher on our equity exposure in reaction to that kind of sell-off. Not because we know for sure that it's going to recover in a short period of time, but that we know with very high confidence that in a reasonable period of time, it will recover. And over that full period of time, it will produce outsized returns versus what we would have got had we not done that. And that kind of confidence and stability gives us an edge Sometimes we call it time arbitrage. It's an edge in just being patient and being able to take advantage of short-term dislocations that produce long-term opportunities. So when you look at how SWIB has done, overall, we've added value this year. It has been a battle. <laughs> it, it, there were moments when we weren't ahead of the game, but we've done particularly well in our fixed income strategies, in our small cap equity strategies. Our hedge funds have done particularly well. That's not my area, but credit to that team in their selection. You know, we've had some struggles with dealing with in the large cap equity spaces. Some of the technology names have just been really unusual behaving this year. They've rallied well beyond what most people would have thought was possible. And it's made it very difficult to play that game. But we're very proud of having a net value added position as we sit here today, despite this incredibly odd year. And on top of that, having to do all the work since mid-March from the comfort of our own homes, right? We have not been in the office together since mid-March, and yet we've managed money, we've hired new people, we've changed infrastructure systems, we've made strategically important decisions, we've ramped up two new products this year. We've brought on an MBS portfolio and a high-yield portfolio portfolio that didn't exist at the beginning of the year, all while not being in the office. So I'm very proud of the team and all the work that's gone into that. So all the uncertainty that we've dealt with this past year is going to carry over into 2021. We're still waiting for vaccines. We're going to see a change in administration at the White House. What do you see for 2021? Yeah, it's so amazing about that comment is the reality is the market looks forward and says, wow, this is about the most certain future 12 months that we've had in a long, long time. Why do I say that? We have a very strong sense of what the political backdrop is going to look like. And it's not going to be as unpredictable at a minimum as it's been over the last four years. That makes people feel better. 
regardless of the specifics of the timing related to the vaccine distribution, the market is very confident for good reason that 2021 will be a lot better than 2020. It's tough to go down. Exactly. <laughs> and at some point in the second half of 2021, people are going to really feel good. And there's going to be some money spent on people reflecting that feeling. And that's not just in the United States. That is globally. We also believe with high confidence that between here and there, the government's probably going to step in with another one to two stimulus programs that's going to put more money into the system to further juice the kind of recovery that we get. So I think it's understandable to look forward and say, wow, there's still a lot of uncertainty, but on a high level basis, no, nah, the market's saying good times are coming. And that's why you see the markets at all time highs right now, because they're looking at forward and saying, there's really nothing in the way of that kind of a future outcome and that kind of a feeling and a level of spending that reflects that positivity. And when you know that that's coming, you don't wait for it. You buy stocks now to get ahead of that, and that's what the market reflects right now. So we've already seen a lot of positive news get discounted into the current stock prices. So now the question is, for market investors, not so much about 2021, but what does 2022 and 23 look like? They worry about the supply disruption that we've seen in things like airlines and other types of industries, restaurants. People talk about a third to a half of the restaurants and bars going away. Will we see inflation in certain industries that is different than the kind of inflation, low inflation we've seen for so many years? And will we see that trickle into the financial markets and see inflation tick up in ways we haven't seen for a long time? Will the recovery in Europe finally allow that part of the world to experience a full-fledged economic expansion in ways that they haven't had for the last 10 to 15 years? And how will investors who have fallen in love with mostly tech and media names that have shown an ability to grow regardless of the COVID problems of 2020 and have bid those stocks up to very expensive levels, particularly relative to other stocks, how will investors view that relationship going forward? Not because those companies are going to do suddenly much worse, but because everything else is going to do much better. Are you still willing to pay such a high premium for Netflix when so many other companies are doing well rather than poorly? And I think that open question is one of the big wrestling matches that investors are thinking about right now. It's a fascinating time as it always is in investing, but it's an amazingly interesting moment in time to be able to sit here and look forward and have an unbelievably high confidence level that a year from now, the world will feel a lot better than it does today. You can't often say that with the level of confidence that I think we can do today. And that's kind of cool. And that's why markets are at all time highs. That is good to hear. Brian, this has been a great discussion today. Thanks so much for being part of the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to the SWIB podcast. We will be bringing you updates on a monthly basis, so make sure to take a moment and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Also, remember to follow SWIB on LinkedIn or subscribe to our email list for more information. The SWIB podcast is brought to you by the State of Wisconsin Investment Board and produced by PodCamp Media. Branded podcast production for businesses, visit podcampmedia.com. Larry Kilgore III was our editor. Thanks again for listening. I'm Chris Preisler. And I'm Dusty Weiss.